The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We began last week looking at this little letter of 2 John and we looked at the authorship, and I said that I believe that Lazarus, a.k.a. John Eleazar, is the same author, the one who wrote the Gospel. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. Um, and again, I said if, you know, we didn't go into that much last week, but go back to the actual Gospel of John and read the introduction there. I spent a whole time trying to deal with that. We saw that John here is writing a personal letter, a letter to a local church. And the reason for writing to them was because there was a lot of false teachers traveling and trying to get into local churches and teach their air. So that's kind of the immediate problem that John is addressing, that of these traveling itinerant teachers and preachers that are circulating churches and bringing false doctrine with them. We looked at verse 1 last week. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Now, why does John address this letter to the elect lady and her children? Well, I think he's trying to be a little cryptic here. He's addressing a local church, but because the churches were under persecution, he does this. If this letter falls into the wrong hands, they think he's just writing to some lady and her kids. And no big deal. So I think he's doing this to protect the readers from persecution. John is combating false doctrine, as I said, so he stresses the issue of truth. Now, last week in our study, we talked about truth five times in the first four verses. You have the Greek word aletheia, meaning truth. And for John, the concept of truth centers on the person of Yeshua. Yeshua said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. That is the word that Yeshua gave them through His preaching, through His teaching, through His life. He is the word. He is the truth. See, these heretics were deceiving the people, particularly about the person of Christ. And I think we could translate here in these verses, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in Yeshua. And not only I, but also all who know Yeshua. He is the truth. He is the one that he is focusing on here and whom they need to understand. Now, we saw last week, and we talked about the fact that the church exists to represent truth, the local church. This is our mission. That is our purpose. And if we fail to uphold the truth, then we fail to fulfill our purpose. And we end up just like Israel. Israel failed to uphold the truth and live the truth. They were to be a witness to the nations. They failed. I think many churches are failing today because we're so into entertainment. We're so into drawing a crowd that you have to be very careful what you say. Because if you draw a crowd, if you offend them, then they leave. So you don't want to offend anybody, so you've got to be real nice about the things you say. But the main thing that should happen when the church gathers is the teaching of the Word of God. That's the most important thing we can do. Now, we didn't talk about this last week because we ran out of time. But in verse 1, John also mentions love, whom I love in the truth. He uses love four times in these first six verses. And we have to understand that truth and love cannot be separated. You know, liberals set aside truth and make love the predominant thing. We just got to love everybody. We have to have this unity and we just need to love and we just need to set aside things that might separate us like doctrine. But then on the other hand, you have what might be called the fighting fundamentalists that exalt every little tiny truth, every minor issue, they want to cause division over it and they just don't have any love for anybody else. And there has to be some kind of balance here. And I think many find it hard to reconcile truth with love. When you stand for truth, people are going to call you unloving, especially in our culture, okay? When you say that homosexuality is a sin, cancel culture is coming after you. 
Oh, that's, no, no, that's, it's a, just an alternate lifestyle. Well, the Bible calls it a sin. So you can call it whatever you want, but the Bible says it's sin and it's wrong. The Bible says that abortion is murder. We don't want to say that today either. The Bible says that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Now, this one is really wild, but the Bible teaches that there's only two genders. And you say that today, and you're like, well, you're not being very sensitive, all right? It's unloving to speak the truth, people say. Well, Paul told the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.15, he said, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way unto Him who is the head, unto Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Many people assume that that means speak the truth, but do it nicely. Be sensitive. Be kind to other people's feelings when you speak the truth. All right? They define love according to the secular social etiquette, a non-Christian standard of polite speech and conduct. But love is that which seeks the highest good of the person loved. Speaking the truth in love considers the interests, the needs of that person as supremely important. Speaking the truth implies despite what postmodernism might say, that there is such a thing as absolute truth in the spiritual realm. And that we can know such truth with reasonable certainty. In other words, spiritual truth is not subjective. According to individual preference or experience, it's objective. And it's true every time and in every culture. The truth is defined in written propositions in the Word of God. This means that we can know and judge whether someone holds the truth or espouses error. We're afraid to say that today if someone's in error. But we can know the truth. We have been infected with the cultural virus of postmodernism, which holds that there's no such thing as absolute truth in the spiritual realm. Or if there is, we really can't know it. So if anyone claims to know the truth, we think that they're arrogant or insensitive towards the view of others. Postmodernism makes truth subjective so that what is true for one may not be true for other. You may have heard someone say, well, that's your truth. Well, I didn't know there were different truths. Truth is truth. It's not your truth or my truth. It's just truth. And thus tolerance and acceptance of any and all views becomes the supreme virtue. The only view that postmodernism cannot tolerate is that of someone who claims to know the truth. <laughs> One of the Gnostics in the second century was a man named Marcion. And he was known as a Gnostic. He was known as a heretic. And he ran into Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. And he asked Polycarp, he said, do you recognize me? Do you know who I am? And Polycarp said, I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan. Oh, that doesn't sound like very nice speech. That doesn't sound like very polite. You know? That's what he told him. That's what, he, that's what Polycarp said. I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan. So much for tolerance, right? Believers, there needs to be a balance. We need to be aware that in an effort to love other people, there's a great danger that we lose discernment. That we lose discretion. That we lose balance between love and truth. I know that some are guilty of being all truth and no love, but there are those who are also guilty of all love and no truth. There's got to be a balance. And what we need to see here is that John is showing love to these Christians by warning them of false doctrine. That's how he's showing them love, by saying, Lucian, you've got to be careful. Don't listen to this stuff. Because if you love somebody, you're going to share the truth with them and you're going to warn them about error. All right, in verse 2 he says, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I don't think that we are to view this as objective truth that abides in them. I think what he's saying is, he's saying because of Yeshua that abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth is Yeshua who abides in them. He says that abides in us. Now, this is a present active participle, 
It's one of John's favorite terms to describe the disciples of Christ. Abide. Look what Yeshua said to His disciples in John 15. This is an important concept that we have to get. We've gone over this, but I want us to really understand what it means to abide. He's talking to His disciples, those in the upper room, and He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, who is the you here? Well, it's whoever was in that upper room, those that were following Him. What does He mean by you are clean? Well, to understand exactly what it means, we just need to go back a couple chapters to chapter 13, where Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Yeshua answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, no part, no meros, no fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well then, not my feet only, but also my head, and my hands and my head. And Yeshua said to him, the one who is bathed, That's using that as an analogy of salvation. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Why does he say not all of you? Because Judas was there in the room. So he said, you're clean, but not all of you. So in chapter 15, Yeshua is simply telling them, already you are clean. You've been born again. You've trusted me. He's talking to his children. He's talking to believers. And then in verse 4, he says, abide in me. So he's telling believers to abide. I'm trying to stress this because so many people say abiding in Christ, being a Christian, they're the same thing. Well, then why is he telling those who are Christians to do this? The verb abide is the Greek mano here. It's used 11 times in John 15, 40 times in John's Gospel, and 27 times in his epistles. This is a major theological theme for John. Abide in me is a command. And he's commanding those who are clean, believers. So to be a Christian and to abide in Christ are two different things. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not a Christian. But you can be a Christian and not abide in Christ. How many people do you know that are Christians, and the way you know this is because they say they are, you just believe in their testimony, but they don't live like anything you would think a Christian would live like. They're not abiding in Christ. All right, They're not His disciples. Abiding is a strong word in the original text. It's a tense that expresses a decisive command. It's in the active voice which indicates that it is something we are expected to do. We initiate that. We do abide in Him. We went through this in 1 John. Hopefully, you got it from 1 John. I know it made it a huge effect on my life. I mean, I just think that this is our calling, people. As Christians, He wants us to abide in Him. He wants us to fellowship with Him. That's clear enough. But, okay, what exactly does it mean to abide? Well, abide is used with the word meaning to dwell. Dwell with me. In other parts of the Gospels, uh, Yeshua says, keep close to me, uh, follow me. Um, obedience to Christ is characterized as abiding. Christians are exhorted to abide in Christ because this is a privilege and it's a duty that can be and very often is neglected. And we just do what we want to do. We're not really abiding. He says this, and I abide in you. The implication is, let me abide in you. This is passive. It's not something we initiate, but something we can expect to happen and trust God for. But it takes both to be a fruitful Christian. We are to abide in Him as we do He abides in us. And we have this fellowship, this intimate relationship. And that's what really abiding is. It's just an intimate relationship where we live in fellowship with Christ. We think His thoughts. We carry out His actions. It's to walk closely with Him. To walk in obedience to His Word. And we'll never do this if we don't spend time in the Word of God. Because we don't know who He is or what He wants or anything if we don't spend time. And the more time you spend, I think the more you're going to get to know Him. Especially through the Gospels. And we watch Him. And we learn to walk in obedience In John 15, 10, he says this, If you keep my commandments, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you do, you will abide in my love. So we see that obedience is part of this 
abiding. All right, he goes on in verse 2. He will be with you forever. So John says the truth abides in us and will be with us for a little bit. No, that's not what he says. It will abide with you forever. The truth abides and remains in all believers forever. That's a powerful statement on assurance. Look what he says in John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. So, eternal life is something they're going to keep then. That's kind of given there by the word eternal. It's not that he doesn't have a five-year plan. There's no ten-year plan. There's only eternal life and perishing. All right? He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, we have the Son, we have the Father, Holding on to believers. This is one of the clearest promises of eternal security of the believer that God has given us in the Word of God. A.W. Pink says this about this text. No stronger passage in all the Word of God can be found guaranteeing the absolute security of every child of God. I think security is very important, people, because if you don't feel secure, there's going to be anxiety, there's going to be stress. You're going to have a hard time living for the Lord if you're not sure you belong to Him. All right, he goes on in verse 3, and this, the first three verses are just the opening greeting, the salutation, so to speak. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Yeshua the Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. All right, grace, mercy, and peace, this threefold opening greeting. We only find this, the grace, mercy, and peace, the only other place you find this is First and Second Timothy. Paul uses it there. So John uses it and Paul uses it, but only in that location. So it's a little bit different of a greeting. And he says grace. What is grace? Well, I think we hear about that a lot. Grace is unmerited favor. Keras. We don't deserve to be forgiven. This is a starting point of salvation. So in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Any relationship with God begins not with our seeking God, because nobody does that, but with His sovereign grace reaching down to us. And then he says mercy. Mercy points to God's compassion towards us in our misery because of our sin. Mercy is directed towards relieving the devastating consequences of our sins. Grace is undeserved favor, Mercy is pity shown to those who are guilty and wretched. If grace gives us what we don't deserve, mercy is withholding what we do deserve, which is wrath, judgment, punishment. This is the only use of mercy in all of John's writings. The only time he uses it. And the result of God's grace and mercy imparted to us is peace. This points to the result of salvation. Paul said this in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justified, being declared righteous with God, we have peace on the grounds of God's grace and the grounds of His mercy. Peace with God is the new status between God and the believer which flows from the reconciliation accomplished in Yeshua. And he said, we'll be with us. The emphatic will be with us assures his readers that God will not abandon them in spite of what these secessionists, these false teachers, are trying to teach them. Now, he uses us rather than you to reinforce the sense here, I think, of community. And then he says, from God the Father and from Yeshua the Christ. Now, both nouns here have the proposition para, which grammatically points, that's from, that grammatically points puts them on equal footing. So from God, from Yeshua. This is a very important subject to God, I mean to John, because he constantly points his readers to the fact that Yeshua is Yahweh. He stresses this all through the Gospel, all through 1 John. He never lets up on this because he wants people to understand it. Um, and we see this in the Gospel all over the place. One of my favorite instances, I think, is in John chapter 5, when Yeshua heals the man who's by the pool of Bethesda, he's been there for 38 years, sitting by the pool, waiting for some angel to come along, stir up the water so he can jump in, but he's crippled so he can't really jump in. He needs someone's help to get him in there. So 38 years the guy's been there. And our Lord says to him, get up, take up your pallet and walk. So he does. 
And immediately the man's healed. He takes up his bed and he walks. This draws considerable attention to our Lord. Because the miracle that he did was on the Sabbath. Okay? So this, promote, this just prompts the Jewish leaders to view Yeshua as a lawbreaker. Listen, this guy's been crippled 38 years, can't walk. Yeshua says, get up and walk, and he does. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, it's the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You're healing people. No, no, no. You, I mean, I'd be thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. But they're worried about, oh, you broke our law. So this healing of this lame man and the following Sabbath controversy really brought out the nature and identity of who Yeshua is. In verse 17, but Yeshua answered them. They're like, you can't do this. That's wrong. You did it on the Sabbath. Yeshua answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. So Yeshua here is justifying his Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. Every one of them would admit that. Because the sun came up on the Sabbath. That's Yahweh's work. The wind blew. The rain fell. The grass grew. They knew that Yahweh continued to work in judgment and redemption, even on the Sabbath. This explains the violence of their reaction in verse 18. The Sabbath privilege was peculiar to Yahweh, and no one else was equal to Yahweh. So in claiming the right to work, even as his father worked, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. He is saying he is the I Am. Now the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying that the eternal God does his work all the time, so he is claiming to do the same thing. To work the same pattern that Yahweh does. Well, this shocked them, this angered them, these Jewish leaders. And it really shouldn't surprise anyone who's familiar with God's Word when Yeshua says this, because we understand who He is. Look, verse 18, He says, This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, He's healing people. So let's kill Him. Okay? Breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father by that making himself equal with God. So Yeshua's contemporaries clearly see him claiming to be equal with God. Now, most Christians that they read that passage, they go right over there and pick up on it, okay? Because they don't know he's claiming to be God. What's interesting is Jehovah Witnesses, the interpreters who say that Yeshua never claimed to be God, have a real tough time with this passage, okay? Because he has clearly, in this passage, claimed to be God. There was never any question in the Jewish mind that he was saying he was God. They got it. That's why they said this was the ultimate blasphemy. They said he makes himself equal with God. Notice something very important that is not in this text. Sometimes we miss that. What he's, we're focusing on the text. Well, what's not in there? Yeshua doesn't respond to these Jews by saying, Oh, no, no, wait a minute, guys. You got it all wrong. I'm not... I'm not claiming to be God. I would never say that. Instead of disagreeing with them, his response in the text is, yeah, and he defends his deity. You're right, guys. I'm God. Do you remember what Thomas said to Yeshua after the resurrection? He says, my Lord and my God. Oh, he's calling him God. So what was Yeshua's response to Thomas? Thomas, come on, man. I'm just a man. Did he say that? No, the next verse was, Yeshua said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So he doesn't contradict him. Why? Because he is God. Now, when we see a man falling down before an angel, what do the angels do? No, no, get up, get up, don't do that. He's God. He deserves their worship. From God the Father and from Yeshua. Now, I said earlier, both nouns here have the preposition para which grammatically puts them on equal footing. But from is also repeated to place both on equal ground while not blurring them as unique persons faithful to the Trinity. So, they're unique, but they're one. And this is, again, pointing to the Trinity. People say, is it, was the Trinity important? Yes, it is. Because if you deny the Trinity, you deny the deity of Christ. You make Him a man. If you make him a man, you just destroyed the gospel. Now, I've heard people argue against the Trinity and say, well, that word's never in the Bible. 
Okay. You're right. It never is. Uh, the word Yeshua is never in the Bible either, but that's, that's what Jesus' name really was, okay? So, and it is never found in the pages of Scripture, but the doctrine is taught throughout the Scripture. The Trinity is the name we put on it to help us understand what's going on there. It's a word used to express the unity of God subsisting in three distinct persons. It's a word describing the unity of the Godhead as co-eternal, co-equal, each having the same substance, but distinct persons. It's a word that describes a purely revealed doctrine, undiscoverable by reason, but taught in the Scriptures. And a lot of people just say, well, that's something the Christians made up, the Trinity. Well, the Tanakh taught that also. Let's look at Isaiah 63. I don't think this is in the New Testament. 63, 9-14 says, The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? The Spirit of Yahweh gives them rest. So you lead your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now what I want you to see in this text is we have the angel of his presence. That's Yeshua. That's the Son. He's the visible manifestation of God. We have the Holy Spirit. And then finally we have Yahweh. So here we have all three members of the Godhead spoken of. And if you go over to Psalm 78, now Psalm 78 is a recounting of this same event that we have here in Isaiah 63. And notice what it says. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. You see the Trinity there? <laughs> you say, no, well, the verbs here, rebelled and grieved, they're used in Isaiah 63.10 of the Holy Spirit. Same words. And they're used here of Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, because Yahweh and the Holy Spirit are one in essence. And so in the New Testament, we learn that the Spirit and Yeshua are one in essence. Also, in Acts 16, 6, and 7, it says they went through the region of Phrygia, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit said, don't go there, go this other direction. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Yeshua did not allow them. So the Spirit of Yahweh, the Son, and the Father is Yahweh. The Spirit's Yahweh, the Son's Yahweh, the Father's Yahweh. Ezekiel gives us the same picture in Ezekiel 8, 1-3. He says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I sat by my house and the elders of Judah sitting before me. The hand of Yahweh, of the Lord Yahweh, fell upon me. Then I looked, and behold, the form had taken the appearance of a man. So you got Yahweh, you got the appearance. Who shows up in the appearance of a man? That's Yeshua. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So here we have Yahweh in verse 1, the hand of the Lord Yahweh. Then in verse 2, we see this divine man. And in verse 3, we have the Spirit. So these three figures are co-identified as Yahweh. The Jews were monotheistic. They served one God, who was Yahweh. But they realized that, realized that Yahweh was a Godhead made up of more than one divine being. And the Jews believed this right up until the Second Temple period, because in the set, once Christ came along and was claiming to be Yahweh, they switched their theology and says, "No, God is there's not so you know several powers in heaven." They used to call it. They got rid of that because then they realized that Christ was saying He was one of those powers, and they couldn't have that, so they just kind of did a switch in their theology. He called Christ to hear the Father is called. I mean, Christ is called the Father's Son. Now, the false teachers claimed a unique and special relationship with God, but theologically depreciated the person and work of the Son. That was where their attack lied. On the, look at verse 7. He says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. 
those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Such a one is deceiver and antichrist. All right, let me give you a little homework for next week. Nah, maybe the week after next week. It says here that the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Is that talking about his first or second coming? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Now, we saw in our study of 1 John that one cannot have the Father without having the Son. This is really clear in Scripture, okay? 1 John 2, 23, 4, 15, 5, 10. And John repeats again and again that Yeshua is the full revelation of the Father. He's the only way to God, John 14, 6. So when the Jews come along and say, oh, we believe in God, we don't believe in Yeshua, what does that tell you about the Jews? They're deniers. They're Christ-rejecting God-haters because if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. People don't get that things change when the Lord came on the scene. Once Christ showed up and said, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, to reject Him is to reject God. These people who loved God prior to Christ showing up, now they're no longer loving God. They're Christ-rejecting God-haters because they don't accept the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So things drastically change for the Jews. Now people say, oh, the Jews are still God's people. No, they're not. Just get a little more familiar with the Scripture. Read Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. That chapter really deals, it's a theodicy dealing with God, and he's done with Israel. They, they turned their back, they rejected him. He's done, and Paul says the church is the Israel of God. All right, again, he uses in truth and love. He just repeats those because they're important that we understand they go together. Well, after he gives us this introduction here, he starts into the body of the letter in verse 4. And he says this, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, somewhere, at some time, John ran into some of the people from this church. And he found out, hey, he was just overjoyed at the fact that they're walking in truth. You know, hopefully you can relate to this. I think anyone who loves the truth rejoices when they find somebody else walking in the truth. Especially, you know, my children walking in the truth. People I've taught walking in the truth. That, that is overjoying to them. And that's what he says. I, I'm just rejoicing greatly. The people from that church, the ones I met, are walking in the truth. Walking here is peripateo. It means to walk. <laughs> That's heavy, right? But think about it. It refers to conduct, behavior, way of life. The idea is to move through life, conducting themselves within the framework of truth. Walking in the truth, walking in Yahweh, you could say. Walking in Yeshua. They were literally being controlled by the truth. The phrase here refers to conduct that results when an individual has truth abiding in them. John put it this way in 1 John. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So if you say, and people can say, I'm abiding in Christ. Well, then here's what Christ says. You ought to walk in the same way he walked. So if you're walking like Christ, then you're abiding. If you're not, you're not abiding. Abiding, again, re remain, dwell, keep in close, be in fellowship with, follow, do what Christ says, obey His commands. Yeshua told His disciples, if you keep My commandments, then you will abide in My love, just as I've kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. We'll see that you can't say, I love God, and then not keep His commandments. You can say it, but it won't be right. Okay? A lot of people say, oh, I love God. No, you don't. You're not, if you're not abiding, if you're not obeying, you don't love Him, because that's how you demonstrate your love is through obedience to what He said to do. Now, what John is saying in 2.6 here is that if we can't claim to abide in Him unless we behave like Him, the behavior and conduct of the historical Yeshua is put forward here as a model for believers to emulate. And this presupposes that the readers of the letter had some information about Yeshua's life and ministry. Where would they have gotten that from? The Gospels. They had the Gospels. Especially 
the fourth gospel. So they knew about Christ, and he's saying, listen, if you're going to abide in him, you've got to walk like he walked. He says, just as we were commanded by the Father. This is an aorist, active, indicative, which refers to the giving of the commandment to love one another, even as Yeshua loved them. The following verses, 5 and 6, make it clear that this commandment is about loving one another. We'll talk about that next week. So the abiding Christian walks in the commandments. And we can't say that we love God if we don't walk in the commandments. Because love is expressed by following the divine guidelines. And it's foolish for us to say that I love God, but then not keep His commandments. Because that's how it's put forth. Now, I want to just kind of spend the rest of our time this morning talking about walking in the truth. Because I think this is really important. The abiding Christian lives their life imitating Christ in all they do. Believers, this is why we are here. And by here, I don't mean in this building. This is why we are alive. This is why we exist. We are to be showing the world Christ by the way we conduct our lives. This is why Yahweh created us. The most fundamental reality of human existence is that we are made by God in His own image to be representatives in the created world. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that Yahweh created us to bear His image. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female, He created them. Now, let's talk first of all about the plurality here in the language. Who is the us and the our here? Who's God talking to here? Himself? (laughs) Most people, most Christians would say, well, this is the Trinity having a conversation within the Trinity, all right? But I believe this is a reference to God's heavenly supernatural family, His divine counsel. From Philo onward, Jewish commentators generally held that these plurals were used because Yahweh was addressing His divine counsel. Now, the early post-apostolic fathers, such as Barnabas and Justin Martyr, they saw these plurals as a reference to the Trinity. And I, I think that's how most Christians would see them today. But recent scholars tend to be in agreement with the ancient Jewish opinion. For example, F.M. Cross notes this. In both Ugaritic and biblical literature, the use of the first-person plural is characteristic of addresses in the divine council. The familiar we has long been recognized as the plural address used by Yahweh of his council. So he's speaking to the other gods, the council that is together, God is saying, hey, let's do this. Now, you say, well, I don't know who F.M. Cross is. Okay, how about the Erdman's Bible Dictionary? You ever heard of that? Erdman's Bible Dictionary says this, The us in let us make man in our image refers to the sons of God or lesser gods mentioned elsewhere. Here viewed as heavenly counsel centered around the one God. In later usage, these probably would be called angels. So the plural language here is important. Who is God talking to? He's talking to His heavenly family. And with His heavenly family, He discusses creating us. His human earthly family. And God wanted us to be like His heavenly family. So what does it mean to be created in His image? Wow, you'll get about as many opinions as you can imagine hearing what different people say about what this means. Whatever it means, we know that it includes both men and women. Can we agree on that? It's not just say, I created men in my image, not women. No, men and women both are created in the image of God. We also know that it's not incremental or partial. You either have it or you don't. And we know that it's passed on generationally. As in Genesis 9, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man his blood will be shed, for God made man in his own image. 
So this is after the flood. It's many generations later, and man is still said to be made in the image of God. This is after the fall. So the image includes all people, believers, listen, and non-believers. And we see here in this text that it's wrong to murder, which we could put abortion in there, because we, mankind, are made in the image of God. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? The image is not an ability that we have. It is a status. God intends us to be His representatives on the earth. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now he says, be fruitful and multiply. This means develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. Work to build up society. Second phrase he uses here, fill the earth and subdue it. It means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, whatever. Build, invent music. Compose it. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, to build civilizations. So what does image mean? Well, our text might be better read this way. It says, let us make man in our image, but it be better read, let us make man as our image, denoting function or role. We are God's agents His representatives on earth. This image was marred in the fall. So now, only believers can truly bear the image of Yahweh. And we can only do this, people, as we live godly lives. The representation idea is seen in Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The word take here is the Hebrew word nasa, which means to lift up, to bear, to carry. You shall not bear the name of God in vain. To bear the name is to be His representative. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands sure, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. So Christians, we name the name of Yeshua. We're His representatives. And He says, as His representatives, we're to depart from iniquity because if you live in iniquity, you're not bearing the name. We're to live lives of holiness. When people look at us, they're to see Yahweh. We are His representatives. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's a good verse for memory. Simple, too. It's not real long. But he's saying here, be imitators of God. Be is a present imperative and has the idea to become. In other words, Christians are to develop continuously into imitators of Yahweh. The Greek word for imitator here is mimites. That's where we get our English word mimic. To mimic or copy something. What it denotes is an actor, an actor who spends time and energy studying a character with a view of reproducing it. So that's you and I. That we are to be studying. We get in the Word of God. We study about God. Why? So we can reproduce that character in our lives. And when people look at us, they see God. Speaking about the image of God, N.T. Wright says this. It seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in His world so that God can reflect His love and care and stewardship of the world through humans. And so the rest of the world can praise the Creator through humans. We're the image of God. We walk through this world, people look at us, that's God. That's, what God, that's how God acts. People knew the importance of example in teaching, Paul knew this. Paul knew, listen, example is so important. If you're going to be a leader, 
in the church. He says example is very important. Why? Because God wants all people to live at this standard, but He needs examples so you can follow those examples. The problem today is the examples are horrible. Kathy was reading me this week something she found about a pastor, and where was he from anyway? Hill, it was one of the Hillsong pastors, and he was the hip or cool pastor. He hung out with Justin Bieber, and he dressed like Justin Bieber, and he was just cool, you know? And they, he said he wouldn't show up at the church for months. I'm like, hey, no one checks on him. I know what's going on. In other words, no accountability. Then he finds out he's having an adulterous affair, and so they asked him to leave. So, but he's, he's tight with Hollywood, so it's not going to you know, probably hurt him too bad. He'll find another job somewhere. But listen, people, that's not what church leaders are being about. Okay? Example is very important. Paul told the Corinthians that he was their father in the gospel, and then he said this, I urge you, be imitators of me. You say, why is he saying that? Because that's what he wanted. He was following Christ, and he said, so you follow me. Do you think Ravi Zacharias could have said this? Be imitators of me. Man, I hope he would never have said it. He probably did say it, but God help us, you know. God help us. And the ministry came out last week with all kinds of information on this, just apologizing, said that, you know, there should have been accountability. You think? But this is what church leaders should be able to say. Be imitators of me. Why does Paul want believers to imitate him? Because he's imitating Christ. Be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. In other words, I'm doing my best to follow Christ, so you follow me, you'll see a living, visual example of what Christ wants all of us to be. He was imitating Christ, who is the perfect image of Yahweh. Paul says to the Thessalonians, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. See, we were imitating the Lord, so when you imitated us, you're imitating the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's living out his command that he's giving believers. He's actually being a consistent person. He is imitating Christ. All right, I want you to notice this verse that he told the Philippians. This is just a huge verse in my mind. This is something you should memorize, you know. This is something you've heard parents say, do as I say, not as I do. That's a hypocritical statement, people, according to the Bible, all right? Paul tells the Philippians, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do that. Oh, my word. This is what church leaders should be able to say. This is what those in the ministry should be able to say. What you see in me, what you receive, what you hear, what you see, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is something all of us should be able to say to other people. If we're living for Christ, if we're abiding in Christ, you just tell people, look... The things I say, what you hear, what you see, you watch me do that. What Paul is saying here is, do what I do. Just do what I do. Now let me ask you something, believers. Can you say to others, follow me as I follow Christ? The constant call of the Christian is to be like Yahweh. It is Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of the Father. That's our calling. We are image bearers. And you know that when people... Listen, the, the, the world loves to find someone in the church to fall so they can say, see, it's all a bunch of nonsense. Look at that. He's a church leader. He's got all this money from all these people. And look at him. They love that. The Jimmy Swaggerts. The Bakers. They love all that stuff. Because it just—it makes them seem that, you know, there's really nothing to that. It's all a bunch of hogwash. They preach this stuff. Jimmy Swaggart would preach on sexual sin constantly while doing it. I just... <laughs> I don't understand it. Pray I never will understand it, okay? It is Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the Father. Because all humans are God's imagers. But since the fall, only believers, because we have the Spirit, can really do this well. Which means that we need to be doing a good job at this. Because lost man totally 
bears God's name in vain. They don't live for him. Their standards are all against his standards. Walking in the truth. Paul says, I'm just, re-, or John says, I'm rejoicing greatly because I found your children. They're walking in the truth. They're living the truth. So let me ask you, believers, what does this look like practically as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father? We have a duty to imitate Christ, to walk in in truth, in Christ, this means if Christ is compassionate, we as His image bearers should be compassionate. If He is loving, then we as His image bearers should be loving. If He's holy, we as His image bearers are to be holy. And if we find through the Scriptures that He is kind, we're to be kind. If he's forgiving, we're to be forgiving. Ephesians 4.32, be kind. Paul says, be kind to one another. Wow, this should be stamped on every internet uh, group out there, okay? Because my word, the stuff that people say on the internet to each other, that they would never say face to face, they'd probably lose some teeth. You know, but when you're hiding behind a screen in a keyboard somewhere, you know, that no one even knows who you are, you can just say all these kind of mean things. And it's sad how, how crazy people are. But, but as Christians, we're to be kind to one another. Because that's Christ's kind and we're His image bearers. We're to be forgiving one another because He forgave us. And I want you to notice the standard here for forgiveness. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. All right, just think of how God forgave you. That's how we're to do it. So, basically saying we are to display Yahweh in all we do and say. This is what it means to walk in the truth. I'm not just believing the truth. Oh yeah, I believe this, I believe that, I believe... I'm walking in it. It's having an effect on my life. So how about you? Let's get personal for a minute. Are you walking in the truth? Do people see Christ in your actions and in your responses? We could ask this. Do they see Christ in your marriage? Do they see it? If they could see behind closed doors, would they see it? Do they see Christ in your work ethic? And by that I mean, are you honest at work? Are you hardworking? Do you, you know, give your boss a full day's work or are you robbing him? Do they see Christ in your driving? (laughs) Do they see Him in your free time? In other words... When you're not doing something you have to do, when your time is free, what do you do with that? Are you using it for the glory of God? Are you using it to minister to others, to care for others, or is it just all about you? If you're abiding in Christ, you're going to walk as He walked. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Lord, and it truly is a two-edged sword, and it does cut deeply. Father, in light of all that seems to be coming out lately about Christians, high-powered, superstar Christians falling, Lord, help us to realize that our calling is to be image bearers. That's what you've called us to do. You've called us to imitate you in all we say and do. And when we do this, Lord, we know that people around us will be affected by that. Lord, please give us understanding. Give us the heart to desire to reproduce you in our lives. To put away the flesh. To understand what it means to be an image bearer. That when people look at us, they'd see you, Lord. Help us not to bear your image in vain. Amen. Questions? Comments? Yes. Too too many questions? Kath, will you bring me my phone, please?
It's right there. Go ahead. You know, are you, well, you I, I can't remember them all. I mean, okay. Since the beginning of your message. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can go back and listen to it. In about a half hour, it'll be online there, and you can go back and just listen to it again. Um, basically, when the Jews, Israel rejected Christ, they became idolaters. They weren't worshiping the true Lord. I mean, they had dabbled with idolatry the whole Once world. they rejected Christ, yeah. they're done. The whole purpose of all that was in the Tanakh was to point to Christ. All the sacrificial system. Everything pointed to Him. He says to the Jews, you search the Scripture, and in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are those which speak of Me. They all point to Me, and if you miss Me, you missed it. You're done. But Yeshua said, God had blinded their eyes. Hardened their heart. They just couldn't see it. All the miracles, everything they saw, they couldn't see it. In Philippians 1, said, What you see and learn and what I do, do I think my kids have done what they said. <laughs> okay. Well, people will do that. You know, people will imitate before they listen. You know, because they see you doing something, and that's bad things and good things. And it seems like people will pick up your bad habits quicker than your good ones. All right, I got a, I got a question here. Sorry, David, this does not pertain to today's teaching. <laughs> Is it okay if I ask a question about another subject? No. <laughs> Just kidding. Is it, I think it was a teaching of yours many months ago. Did you say that ravens who fed the man daily were... Really, men who wore black robes. No, I never, I never said that. I don't believe that. I just actually think birds brought him food. You know, because that's kind of a miracle. You know, the birds instead of eating it, they brought it. You know, and God controls everything. The ravens as much as anything else. The river. No, I, I never said that. No, I never said that. I don't believe it. And I, I shouldn't say that. I could have lapsed into a coma for a minute. <laughs> I swear there's some things I said I never said that, and then I go back and I'm like, why did I say that? <laughs> so, no, I don't believe, I, you know, I, I, I would have to ask for hard evidence to see that I said that, because I don't, I don't think that I said that. Unless you were saying some people interpret that. And if you did, you didn't mean to. Okay, another, another question here. Uh, okay. We're to follow Yeshua's commands. Are these commands only in the New Testament and or referring to the Ten Commandments? Great question, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> so you got to come back, because I don't want to give you next week's message this week, okay? But we're going to talk about that, all right? All right. Uh, I think that's all I got here. Appreciate the questions coming in. Anybody else? You all got that? Simple, right? Just be imitators of God. That's all you got to do. Just imitate God. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people think they're imitating God because they don't know who God is because they don't spend time in the Bible. You've got to know Him from the Scriptures. You know. And don't go walking in a restaurant tipping over tables and say, I'm just trying to imitate Christ. <laughs> no, you have to. Let's keep the Bible in context, okay? <laughs> yeah. Let's not, uh, let's not take things out of context and do what we want to do with them. But I think you get the point. You know, people, we're, we're here as image bearers. People look at us, okay, that's that's what they believe, that's what, how they live, that's what they do. It, it, should, it should come out to them. All right, band, will you guys come on up here and let's close by singing Good, Good Father. Our Father is a good, good Father. We represent Him. We'll be good, good children. Okay, I got another question I got to deal with while you all get ready. Too late. And here's a question, and I think I covered this in the message. The question is, can you be saved and not abiding? Yes, absolutely. I think, as a matter of fact, I think majority of Christianity is not abiding. Okay? Uh, uh, Rabbi Zacharias, was he a Christian? He sure seemed to understand the gospel. Was he abiding? Not even close. Okay? So yes, you can be a Christian. Christians, You become a Christian by believing the truth. Abiding is following Christ. 
First John, we dealt with this really heavily. And there, go back to First John and just, or just go to our search engine on the website and type in abiding and you'll find everything, you know, from first to last that I talked about abiding and you'll see what that's all about. Like I said, most people today will tell you abiding in a Christian, they're just the same thing. It's just a different way to say a Christian. But it's really confusing why the Lord told Christians to do this if I'm a Christian, Lord, you don't need to tell me I'm going to do it, right? No, it's a separate thing.